Praise the Lord and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We have now come to part 8 in this 12-part series. If you're just joining us, all of the previous studies are available, uh, both the recordings and the notes, through our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And encourage you to download the notes and any of the studies that you miss. You can always catch up by listening to the audio later on. I want to get right into it tonight. Uh, we're starting a brand new section. This uh, takes us to Acts chapter 13. And as I mentioned at the end of last session, many commentators believe that the book of Acts was actually written by Luke in two separate volumes. The first volume being chapters 1 through 12, which we've just completed. And where we're beginning tonight would actually mark the start of volume 2. In any case, we'll notice a, sig a significant shift in emphasis from here on out. Um, we mentioned last time that with the exception of one more appearance in chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, we will not hear from Peter again. Peter was uh, the predominant leader in the Jerusalem church in the early years and in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, we are now going to see uh, Saul of Tarsus, better known to us as the Apostle Paul, uh, coming more and more to the forefront of action. Now, I was looking at my notes and I realized we started this study um, way back in August of 2016, and here we are uh, mid-April, almost the end of April 2017, and I hope you're not getting bored because I'm not. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time even today uh, moving ahead even beyond where we are, and the book of Acts is just so exciting. It's so full of treasure. And I want to encourage you to keep sticking with us because there are some very powerful truths that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us. And certainly this beginning uh, section of Acts 13 is no exception. This is a, a very important portion of scripture, and I would say that these opening three verses in the last three to four years have dramatically changed my whole vision of ministry, and so I want to get right into it here with Acts 13, 1 to 3. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We saw last time that the church in Antioch became a major center 
in the outreach of the gospel, particularly into the Gentile world. God moved mightily there. They had a great revival. Many, many souls were saved and added to that church. And we can already see in these opening verses how God blessed the Antioch church. And in many ways, what we just read here, I believe, should be a model for all of our modern churches to study very carefully. And also to note how often our modern churches have deviated from the plan that we see here in these three simple verses. And I often ask uh, church groups and pastors and leaders when I read these three verses, after we've read them I ask, who's in charge of this church? And people often stop and scratch their heads and they keep looking it over and finally they kind of shrug their shoulders. It's, it's hard to tell who was the senior pastor, the chief pastor, the lead pastor, whatever term you want to use, you won't find it. And the answer to the question is simple. The Holy Spirit was in charge of this church. And therein lies our problem. We've often deviated from that model into something far less where there's a senior pastor or a board or some human entity that's running the church. This is such a beautiful scripture that we just read. It shows that with a diversity of rich gifts and ministries, no one but the Holy Spirit was evidently in charge of this church. There was a plurality of leadership. There was no one single pastor in charge or somebody running the show. The Holy Spirit was truly in charge of this church. And as I mentioned, this has really challenged me and stirred me for the past several years, and it's caused me to really pray and fast and seek the Lord for our churches, that we could somehow return to this model where God the Holy Spirit is the one building the church, directing the affairs of the church, raising up the ministries of the church, and uh, causing that living organism that we call the body of Christ to grow. And sadly, and I'm not trying to be critical here tonight, but sadly, how often our modern churches are not like this Antioch church. And they seem to resemble more a corporation like IBM or Google or uh, Exxon, where there's a president or senior pastor who really operates more like the CEO of the corporation, and in many cases, he's given unlimited governing power. He's the man. He calls the shots. He has all the power, and he does all the preaching. He's the man. And that is just not what we saw 
in these first three verses. And we're going to see a lot more as we go deeper into the next chapters of the book of Acts. But how beautifully this church was coming together and how the grace of God had blessed this church. Remember when Barnabas first went there, he saw the grace of God. There was evidence of the grace of God. Interesting, the word for grace in Greek is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And the word for gift is charisma. It's taken from the word for grace. And we often talk about charismatic churches. Well, a charismatic church is one that believes in the charisma, the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Grace was evident in this church, and notice the gifts that God had blessed this church with. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. It mentions them by name. Two of them, Barnabas and Saul, are now being called out and prepared to be sent forth from Antioch as apostles, and they will so be called apostles. So we have prophets, teachers, and apostles all in Antioch. (coughs) How God blessed them. Notice that they are actually named here. Barnabas first, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and lastly, Saul. Let's just look for a moment at the different gifts that are mentioned here. It says there were prophets in the church. We've already looked at this earlier in our study in the book of Acts. Uh, the first prophets seen in book of Acts came out of the Jerusalem church. One of them we already know by name, that's Agabus. We met him in Acts chapter 11. Uh, this is the first mention of prophets now uh, outside of Jerusalem. Prophets in Antioch. And the word prophet comes from a Greek word which means a foreteller. It literally means to show, to make known, to speak, or to say before. By analogy, it means an inspired speaker, and it often does include this idea of telling something ahead of time. Although not necessarily, prophets often tell things ahead of time. They predict, they foretell things. So they had prophets in Antioch, and the scriptures mention both prophets and prophetesses, both sexes are mentioned in the scriptures as having been given that gift or office. Uh, We remember Deborah, the prophetess in the Old Testament. They were gifted by the Holy Spirit to receive revelations from God and to announce, to proclaim, to preach those revelations to others. So, In a real sense, a prophet is a mouthpiece for the Lord and would often even give warnings of coming events. When Paul lists these different 
gifts and ministries in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Ephesians, he always lists the apostles first and the prophets second. And he singles out just the apostles and prophets together with Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20, as forming the foundation of the church. They also had teachers. There were prophets and teachers in Antioch. The word teacher simply means an instructor, doctor, master, or teacher. This is, interestingly, the only direct reference to teachers in the book of Acts, although a related Greek verb meaning to teach is often mentioned uh, in connection with the ministries of the apostles and others in the book of Acts, and I gave you a whole bunch of references there in the notes, which I'm not going to rattle off. But one of the five gifts of Christ listed in Ephesians 4.11 are the teachers. Teachers were men to whom the Holy Spirit had given the ability to expound and explain the Word of God to others in a simple and understandable manner. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul gives his list, apostles, prophets, teachers are listed third there, but then in Ephesians 4.11, the teachers are last. So they are a recognized office, uh, along with the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. As I mentioned, the names of these ministers are given, indicating that their graces were quite evident to the entire church body there in Antioch. They didn't go around with a tag on them saying, I'm a prophet, I'm a teacher. People could recognize the grace in their lives. And so I think the whole church acknowledged these were prophets, these were teachers. Um, It's interesting to notice the order of names in the book of Acts. I think Luke does it deliberately. Barnabas is listed first here. Saul is listed last. And for a time, it'll always be Barnabas and Saul. But suddenly that's going to reverse. And from that point on, it will be Saul or Paul and Barnabas And finally, Paul will take center stage. It's just interesting that he's listed last here, probably because Barnabas had the seniority. He was uh, probably the eldest, recognized as a major leader, both in Jerusalem and now in Antioch. And Saul probably the youngest in the group, and up until this point, the least known. Now, verse 2 is very important. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I think it's very significant what they were doing. <clears throat> they weren't sitting around with a, you know, a board meeting, uh, brainstorming, planning, strategizing. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And it was in that environment that the Holy Spirit started to speak. I would maintain that the gifts of the Holy Spirit started to operate. The anointing began to fall on the different gift ministries, and the Holy Spirit began to direct the church supernaturally. What were they doing? Worshiping the Lord and fasting. It seems like this was a regular practice in the Antioch church, and possibly in all of the early churches. I would add, it should be in our present-day churches. We should have a lot more worshiping, a lot more fasting and praying, and a lot less strategizing and human planning. This is probably the most important point I want to make out of these first three verses. Please note this carefully. Paul's first apostolic mission did not result from a board meeting, meeting or a planning session. It was initiated in a fasting and prayer service by the Holy Spirit as the ministers prayed and waited on the Lord. How often... Churches, and again, I'm not trying to be critical, but how often churches are far, far afield from this. They're sitting around in a board meeting, looking at dollars and cents and demographics and even calling in uh, consultants and Madison Avenue advertisers and all this stuff to try to plan out their mission or plan out their five-year plan or vision for the church. Now, there's a time and a place for some of that, but oh, that God could bring us back to worshiping the Lord, fasting and praying until the Holy Spirit speaks, until the Holy Spirit directs. I'll tell you, I've come to a place in my own life and ministry where I don't want to move, I don't want to do anything unless the Holy Spirit is directing it. I understand Moses' prayer in Exodus 33 very well now. Lord, if you don't go with us, if you don't go before us, we ain't going nowhere. We're not going anywhere unless you go before us. We need this kind of guidance in our churches. Now, we may not be an Apostle Paul. We may not be, you know, planning some great missionary trip to 20 nations. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit wants to be in charge of every church. 
And I believe if we give him the chance, he'll speak to us. He'll stir up the gifts of the Spirit. He'll stir up prophets and give us the direction that we so desperately need. This first mission that Paul and Barnabas are about to set out on did not start from human planning. It came from the Holy Spirit. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. It was the Holy Spirit that singled these two men out for a definite purpose with a definite and clear calling. Now, we're not specifically told how the Holy Spirit did that, but it's likely that he spoke through one of the prophets. They had prophets in Antioch, and probably the word of the Lord came through one of those prophets saying, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. <clears throat> says in verse 3, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The New Living Translation, I think, gets this right. It says, So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. They were already fasting and praying and worshiping. Then this directive comes from the Holy Spirit. What do they do? They fast and pray more before sending them out with the blessing of the whole church. Fasting is seen in several other places in the book of Acts. It's seen in Acts chapter 10 and again in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas would fast and pray even before they ordained elders. So this seemed to be a regular practice in the church, particularly when they were seeking the Lord for guidance and direction. So it should be with you and with me. You need answers, you need direction, you need guidance in your personal life, fast and pray about it. Now, Barnabas and Saul had already been in the work of the Lord for about eight years prior to this time. So they were not novices in the ministry. Uh, they had been around a while. And when they were commissioned by the church, and I want you to notice this, this isn't something that Paul and Barnabas chose either. They were commissioned by the Holy Spirit through the body, through the church. They were commissioned and released for this new service, and they were sent away with the church's blessing. This is seen throughout the book of Acts. Never did we have this lone ranger mentality where I'm all alone in my house and I decide I'm going to proclaim myself to be an apostle and I'm going to go to Africa. They never operated like that. They worked together as a body. They all needed the gifts that were in one another and they trusted the Holy Spirit to unite them together in that one body. The laying on of hands here, uh, it says they fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands here was not to impart a spiritual gift or an, some authority 
to Barnabas and Saul. They already had that. The church in Antioch, through its leaders, they were simply expressing their, their participation, their fellowship with Barnabas and Saul, and being partakers of this whole process, sending them out from the church. By the way, in Acts 14, verse 4, Paul and Barnabas are called apostles. They're not called apostles prior to this, because they'd never been sent out by the church. That's what an apostle is. An apostle is sent by God, sent by the Holy Spirit, and is a representative sent out by the church. That's why they laid their hands on them and then sent them out. When the church sent them out, signifying the entire church's participation in their ministry, it's significant to note in Acts 14, when they return to Antioch, they make a report of their entire mission to the entire church. Again, kind of closing this whole circle that it's not just Paul and Barnabas, it's the whole church that's going to evangelize on this mission. So, three simple verses, but huge, huge revelation. The church... They had prophets, they had teachers, they were meeting together probably regularly to worship the Lord in fasting and prayer, to wait on the Holy Spirit for His direction for the church. And certainly, they got that direction here. The Holy Spirit singled out Barnabas and Saul for the work to which God had already called them. So, they're sent out by the church, and they're on their way. We'll read in Acts 13 from verse 4 down to verse 12. It says, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. 
Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, and he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It says in verse 4 that Barnabas and Saul, the two of them, were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They weren't going in their own power. They weren't going in their own giftings or anointings or anything else. They were being sent by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's mission. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And they went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. It is of no coincidence that God chose two of them, Barnabas and Saul. He didn't choose Barnabas. He didn't choose Saul. He chose two men together, Barnabas and Saul. This biblical pattern we see throughout Scripture. And I want to pause on this for a little bit because I think it's important to understand why. Jesus regularly did this in Mark 6, verse 7. It says, Calling the twelve to him, Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. This pattern continues, as we've already noted, in the book of Acts. It was Peter and John in Acts 3, in Acts 4, and even again in Acts 8. Peter and John traveled from Jerusalem down to Samaria, not one or the other by himself. In Acts 11 all the way through Acts 15, it's always Barnabas and Saul, or Paul and Barnabas. Then, in Acts 15, we read about another pair of men, one of whom becomes very significant thereafter, Silas and Judas. Judas and Silas were sent out two by two, and then on his second missionary journey, it would be Paul and Silas. So, this is an important pattern that seems to have some very important uh, spiritual and biblical implications. Um, on, a, on a strictly practical note, two is better than one. The book of Ecclesiastes says that. And very often... When one apostle would be teaching or preaching, the other one could be there praying, uh, keeping an eye on the crowd, etc., etc. And the 
two of them together, um, there seem to be a multiplying of their graces, their gifts, their anointing, and so forth. So, this is a very important pattern that we'll notice throughout the book of Acts. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Notice again the centrality of the Holy Spirit in this story. The Holy Spirit called them. The Holy Spirit set them apart. The Holy Spirit sent them. Who was in charge of the Antioch church? The Holy Spirit. Who was in charge of this apostolic mission? The Holy Spirit. We often refer to it as Paul's first missionary journey, but that's a bit of a misnomer. It wasn't Paul's journey. It wasn't his mission. It was the Holy Spirit's. This marks the beginning of Paul's first apostolic mission or missionary journey, as it's often called in the literature. And it's going to extend up through Acts 14 and verse 28. This is what we'll be covering in this eighth part of our study. This first apostolic mission would focus primarily on evangelizing Asia Minor. And it says in verse 5, having been sent by the Holy Spirit, and they went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus, then they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, we've mentioned this already, and we're going to see this over and over and over again. The apostolic pattern was always, when they went to a new town, if there was one, to first go to the Jewish synagogue and present the gospel to the Jews and the Jewish converts or proselytes, because that was the pattern. Salvation is first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And they followed that very religiously throughout the book of Acts. So, by no coincidence, they first go to the Jewish synagogues. And whenever they would arrive in a new place, uh, we'll see some instances where there wasn't a synagogue. Nevertheless, they would still seek out the Jews in that place first to, as it were, give them the first opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, an important character is mentioned here. We've heard his name earlier in the book of Acts, but he's now going to become a very important part of the story. That's John. Now, there are several Johns, so we need to be clear here. This is John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. John Mark. We saw uh, in the previous chapter, it was in his mother's house, where they had an all-night prayer meeting for Peter when he was locked up in jail. So, <clears throat> John Mark has joined Barnabas and Saul on this 
missionary journey. Uh, pretty logically, for one good reason. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. So they were blood relatives, and he was no doubt uh, a believer and a good man. And it says here, John was with them as their helper. The words are chosen very carefully. He was not the third apostle on this mission. He was going as a helper. The Greek word here means literally an under oarsman. The, the prefix in the word means under. So he was a subordinate, a helper, an assistant under Paul and Barnabas. Sadly, he would quickly desert them. We'll read that when we come to verse 13. Uh, and go back home. But for now, we'll keep that tucked away until we get there. John Mark is named here as a helper, an assistant, who's come along with Saul and Barnabas. One more important player that we'll look at, and this is probably as far as we'll get tonight, we may not even finish the whole story, we're introduced to in verse 6 and onwards. Elymas, or Bar-Jesus. He's a false prophet and a sorcerer. It says the false prophet Elymas, Bar-Jesus, and, well, let's read a little bit about what he was up to. He was a Jewish wizard, that's really what the word means, or sorcerer, and a false prophet. He also has a job, he's employed as an attendant to the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, this Sergius Paulus is a good man, and he wants to hear the word of God. And when he hears about Paul and Barnabas coming to that region, he wants to hear more of the truth of the gospel. However, Elymas would be a real hindrance. He would actually try to keep the proconsul from turning to Christ. Notice the parallels in this story with that of Philip and Peter in Samaria. Remember Simon the sorcerer, whom we met there in Acts 8? It seems that there's always some demonic resistance that Satan raises up when the gospel is first being introduced into a new region. Certainly that was no uh, exception here. So as they begin to proclaim the word of God, Elymas rises up in opposition to them. It says in verse 7, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. How nice. How wonderful when somebody hears that a preacher's in town and they invite him to their home because they want to hear more. 
Let's listen to the amplified version of verse 7. He was closely associated with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent and sensible man of sound understanding. He summoned to him Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God concerning salvation in the kingdom of God attained through Christ. He was sensible, intelligent, and a man of sound understanding. I would maintain that intelligent, sensible people want to hear the word of God, as did this man. Only a fool closes his ears to the word of God. This man was intelligent. And oh, in our modern culture, how we pride ourselves on how intelligent we are. Are we really? The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool plugs his ears to the word of God and says, away with it. I don't want to hear this silly Bible. I don't want to hear this babbling, this foolishness from these preachers. Intelligent and sensible people like Sergius Paulus call for a preacher. They go to a place where they can hear the word of God. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But the plot thickens. Verse 8. His attendant, Elymas, but Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. You know, it's one thing to be unsaved, to be ignorant, or to have made up your mind, you don't want to believe, you want to be an atheist, or whatever. It's something altogether different, though, when, like Elymas, a person actively opposes the preaching of the gospel and even actively tries to prevent people from turning to Christ. That's what's happening here. And he's rightly called a false prophet. That's what false prophets false teachers, false professors do. They turn people away from God. And what horrifying judgment awaits false prophets, false teachers, and people like Elymas, who not only destroy themselves, but they insist on corrupting as many others as possible. There's a great deal in Scripture about such people. Uh, just look at Second Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude and you'll get some sense of the horrendous judgment that God has reserved for people like this. Note how the devil is especially busy with people like this Sergius Paulus. He was a governing authority. He was a man of great influence and power. 
Notice how the devil singled him out and tried his best to prevent him from even hearing the truth of the gospel, let alone becoming a true follower of Christ. Because people in that position of influence and authority, when they come to Christ, they can change many, many other people. They can have a profound effect on the, the culture, the society, and even on the government. And so, Satan rears his ugly head through Elymas to oppose Saul and Barnabas and to try to turn the proconsul from the faith. Well, years later, after this whole experience with Bar-Jesus, Paul would write to Timothy about people like him who opposed the truth. And I'm reading from 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9. Talking about false teachers and false leaders, Paul says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Verse 9, it says, Then Saul, who was also called Paul. This is the first time we will see this name used for Saul, and from this point on, he will always be called Paul. Now, Saul was his given Hebrew Jewish name. It means, literally, asked of God. Paul was his Roman or Hellenistic Greek name. It means little. And most of the uh, historical accounts and commentaries about Paul indicate that he was a man of very short stature, possibly explaining why he was called little. Little Paul. Little Paul. And so, from this point on, we're going to know him as Paul, not Saul of Tarsus. Verses 9 to 11. It says, Then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him 
by the hand. Whoo! Reminds us a little bit of Peter in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. These apostles had some serious authority and power granted to them by God. And lest anyone be tempted to criticize Peter for being mean and uncaring or Paul from, you know, being too harsh or getting into the flesh, the scriptures are very clear here. Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. This was not Paul. This was the Holy Spirit. Peter told Ananias and Sapphira, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Bam, they dropped dead. These apostles were serious dudes. And no wonder it says in Acts 5, after Ananias and Sapphira were buried, great fear came upon everybody in the church. I would think so. And anyone who witnessed this event, they should have feared God. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, and I mentioned this earlier, there's a big difference between an unbeliever or someone who's chosen not to believe or to be an atheist and someone who actively opposes the gospel opposes Jesus Christ and tries their level best to hinder people from coming to Christ. There's a world of difference. And you can understand the judgment that awaits these people just by the reaction of the Holy Spirit in Paul against this man, Elymas. You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind. And for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Paul, realizing that this proconsul had a sincere heart. He was sincerely seeking the truth. He wanted to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to tell him, realizing that and seeing how it was Satan himself behind this. Elymas was satanically inspired. He was an enemy of the truth. Paul announced God's fourfold indictment against this false prophet. Number one, you are a child of the devil. <clears throat> Interestingly, his name was Bar-Jesus. That literally means son of Jesus. Well, what a lie that was. He wasn't a son of Jesus. Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, Paul says, here's what you really are. You are a son of the devil. You're not a son of Jesus. You're a child of the devil. Number two, you are an enemy of everything that is right. Third, 
you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Obviously, manifesting that he was just like his father, the devil, who's been a liar from the beginning. Full of deceit and trickery. As is always the case with false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, false leaders. They're pseudo-leaders. It's a, it's a trick. It's a lie. It's a deception. And number four, you will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Perverting the right ways of the Lord. You see, this is what false prophets and false teachers and false apostles end up doing. They misrepresent the Lord. They don't properly represent Him. They don't speak for Him. Because of their misrepresentation, the truth is evil spoken of, Peter says. He was misrepresenting the ways of the Lord to discourage people and to turn people away from the Lord, as he was definitely trying to do with Sergius Paulus. Says, the hand of the Lord is against you. Well, whenever you see the hand of the Lord in Scripture, it speaks of God's power. It may be God's power to heal, God's power to bless, God's power to assist, God's power to work signs and wonders, but it can also be God's hand of judgment. The hand of the Lord is against you. It wasn't there to help Elymas, it was against him. The hand of the Lord came against Bar-Jesus, and notice, Paul didn't have to lift a hand. This was the hand of the Lord that came against Elymas, bringing temporary blindness upon him. Now, I hope you can see the mercy of God here. He could have blinded him permanently, but he didn't. It was temporary. As Paul had been temporarily blinded on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul could relate to that. He knew what temporary blindness was all about. And this was a fitting punishment for Elymas, because he was trying to keep sincere souls like Sergius Paulus in spiritual blindness and darkness. And that's what false prophets do. They bring blindness, they bring darkness, they bring confusion. And that's why the deepest, darkest chains are reserved for such people. You read about it in Jude and Second Peter. Far worse is reserved for people like Elymas and his kind if they cannot find repentance. So, he was blinded for a season, and not to make a big doctrine out of this, but Elymas's blindness could be a sign, since it was just temporary. Maybe it's an allusion to the temporary blindness that has now come upon Israel, 
You can read about it in Romans 11. We're not going to go there now. But Paul talks about a temporary blindness that has come upon Israel while God has turned his attention temporarily to the Gentiles. He will eventually lift that blindness off of Israel and many of them will repent and accept Jesus as their Messiah. But the main opponents of the gospel, and we're going to see this chapter after chapter in the book of Acts, the main opponents of Paul and the gospel ministry would be none other than the Jews. So not only were they unwilling to accept Jesus as their Messiah, but they would also actively seek to prevent others from doing so, and even persecute and kill those who preached the good news of Jesus. As a result, Israel has, for now, been judicially blinded by God. It's only for a time, eventually, a repentant remnant of the nation will turn to Jesus as Messiah and be converted. After being blinded, it says Elymas groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He can no longer pretend to be a guide for anyone, neither for the proconsul or anyone. He's so blind, he needs somebody to lead him about. What happened to all of his magical powers of sorcery? He's reduced to Uh, a, a sorry individual groping around waiting for somebody to lead him by the hand. But the story has a happy ending. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. I would think so. (laughs) When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching of about the Lord. The proconsul was astonished by this display of God's power. He believed. He became a Christian. He was the first fruits of Paul's ministry in Paphos, and quite possibly Paul's first trophy of grace on this first missionary journey. We don't know specifically of any other converts who are named before this one. And remember, he's a person of great stature, intelligence, position, and influence. No doubt he would have shared his faith with many others long after Paul had moved on. Once again, I point out as we bring this to a close... The apostles in the early church were given great power, great authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel, establish sound doctrine, and yes, even to dispense divine judgment. As seen here in the blinding of Bar-Jesus, and as already mentioned, with the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. I've given a number of other references here of other instances where you can see that kind of authority 
that was given to the apostles, even to bring punishment and judgment on certain individuals who were doing harm to the church and to the furtherance of the gospel. Well, that's as far as we'll be able to make it in our study tonight. We'll continue in this first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul next time, but let's close in prayer for tonight. Father, we thank you for this amazing portion of Scripture that we have looked into tonight that inspires us about the kind of church you want to have. You want to have a church filled with prophets, teachers, evangelists, apostles, a thriving church where the Holy Spirit is actively not only involved, but in charge. And Lord, we pray that our churches can follow this model, that you would raise up a plurality of gifts and ministries in our churches that can be led by the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, we would spend our time worshiping, fasting, and praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit to build the church, waiting for the Holy Spirit to raise up ministries and even send them out on specific missions. Lord, I pray that in these last days you would raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Lord, they would be anointed. They would be full of the Holy Spirit and power. They would have authority to establish the churches. And yes, even to confront evil and false doctrine and pseudo-ministries that would only hinder the growth of the church and sincere souls from coming to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We give ourselves into your hands. Keep us. Watch over us. Bless us, O God. Keep your people. Make your face shine upon us and be gracious to each and every one of us. Lift up your countenance. Turn your face toward us and give us your shalom, your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.